to the Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade-offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically minded decision maker, this podcast is for you. Hello, and welcome to episode five of the Cubelets podcast, the podcast where we explore cloud native topics one topic at a time. This week, we're going to the root of everything money. No, I mean infrastructure. My name is Nicholas Lane, and joining me this week are Carlicia Campos. Hi, everybody. And Duffy Cooley. Hey, everybody. Good to see you again. So, how have you guys been? Anything new and exciting going on? So, for me, this week has been really interesting. There's an internal VMware conference called Radio, where we have a bunch of engineering teams across the entire company kind of get together and talk about the future of pretty much everything. And so, I've been kind of sponging that up this week, and that's been really interesting, kind of talking about all the interesting ideas and fascinating new technologies that we're working on. Awesome. And Carlicia? My entire team is at uh, Radio, which is in San Francisco, and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sort of glad I didn't have to travel. Yeah. Yeah, nothing too exciting for me this week. Uh, Last week, I was on PTO, and that was great. So this week, I've just been kind of getting spun back up. Now I'm getting back into the swing of things a bit. Were you spun back up with a script? (laughs) Yeah, I was. (laughs) With infrastructure as codes? Yes, absolutely. So this week on the Kubelets podcast, we are going to be talking about cloud native infrastructure. Basically, I was interested in talking about this because we've spent some time talking about some of the different ways that people can use cloud native tooling. But I I wanted to kind of get to the root of it. Like, where does your code live? Where does it run? What does it mean to create cloud native infrastructure? And so to start us off, you know, we'll talk about the concept. So to me, cloud native infrastructure is basically any infrastructure tool or service that allows you to programmatically create infrastructure. And by that, I mean like your compute nodes, like anything running your application, your networking, so software-defined networking, storage, so Ceph, object store, that sort of thing. You can just spin them up in a programmatical and like contract way. And then, you know, uh, databases as well, which is very nice. And then I also kind of lump in anything that's like a managed service as part of that. So going back to databases, if we use like AWS, for instance, they have their RDS or RDB tooling that provides databases on the fly and then they manage it for you. So those things to me are cloud native infrastructure. Duffy, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely one of my favorite topics. I've spent a lot of my career working with infrastructure one way or the other, whether that meant racking servers in racks and doing it the old school way and figuring out power budgets and, you know, dealing with networking and all that stuff, or whether that meant, you know, finally getting to a point where I have an API and my customers, when they come to me and they say, I need 10 new servers, I can be like, one second, and then run a little script and they have 10 new servers versus, you know, having to order the hardware, get the hardware delivered, get the hardware racked, replace the stuff that was dead on arrival, kind of go through that whole process. And so, yeah, cloud native infrastructure or infrastructure as a service is definitely near and dear to my heart. How do you feel about if you are an admin? So you work for VMware and you're a field engineer now. So you 
basically a consultant, but if you were back in that role of an admin at a company and you had the company was practicing cloud native infrastructure things. <laughs> so basically what we're talking about is we go back to this theme of self-sufficiency a lot. I, th I think we're going to be going back to this a lot too uh, as we go through different topics. So mainly uh, someone wants a server now, environment now, they can run a, an existing script that maybe you made it for them. But do you have concerns that your job is redundant now that you can just one script can do all like a lot of your work? Yeah. So in the field engineering org, we kind of have this mantra that we're trying to automate ourselves out of a job. And I feel like anyone who's like really getting into cloud native infrastructure, that is the path that they're taking as well. So as an, if I were an admin in a world that was like hybrid or anything like that, they uh, had like on-prem or main or bare metal infrastructure and they had cloud native infrastructure, I would be more than ecstatic to take any amount of the administrative work of like spinning up new servers in the cloud native infrastructure away. Like if the people just need something where they can go click, 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 I've got whatever services I need and they all work together because the cloud makes them work together. Awesome. That gives me more time to do other tasks that may be a bit more onerous or like less automated. So I would be all for it. So you're saying that if you are, because I don't want the admin people listening to this to stop listening and thinking, <laughs> screw this. <laughs> so you're yeah. saying if you're an admin, there will still be plenty of work for you to do? Yeah, there's always stuff to do, I think. You'll, and if not, then I guess, you know, maybe it's time to find somewhere else to go. <laughs> there was a really interesting presentation that, that really stuck with me when I was, when I was working for CoreOS, which was another infrastructure company. It was a presentation by, by our CTO, whose name is Brandon Phillips. And uh, Brandon put together a presentation around the idea that every single day there are, you know, so many thousand new users of the internet coming online for the first time. And that's, you know, so many thousand people who are like going to be storing their photos there, getting email, doing all the things that we do in our daily lives with the internet. And that globally, like across the whole world, there are only about, I think it was like 250K or 300,000 people that do what we do, that understand infrastructure at a level that they might even be able to automate it, you know, to that work in the IT industry and are able to actually facilitate the creation of those resources on which all of those applications will be hosted, right? This isn't even taking into account the number of applications per day that are brought into the internet or made available to users, right? I mean, like that in itself is a whole different thing, like how many people are putting up new web pages or putting up new content or, or what have you every single day. So fundamentally, I think that like, we have to think about the problem in a slightly different way. This isn't about whether we will have jobs. It's about how, <laughs> when we are so outnumbered, you know, how do we, as this relatively small force in the world, handle the demand that is coming, that is already here today, right? And so those people that are listening, who are working in infrastructure today, you're even more valuable when you think about it in those terms, because there just aren't enough people on the planet today to solve those problems using the tools that we are using today, right? And so automation is king, and it has been for a long time, and it's not going anywhere. We need 
the people that we have to be able to actually support much larger numbers or bigger scale of infrastructure than they can than they know how to do today and that's the problem that we have to solve yeah so totally. looking from the perspective of whoever's paying the bills i think that in the past as a developer you had to request the server to run your app in a test environment and eventually you get it and that would be the server that everybody would use to run against, right? Because uh, you're a developer in a group and everybody's developing different features and that one server is what we would use to push out changes to and, and do some level manual tasks or maybe we have a QA person who would do it. So that's one server or one resource or one virtual machine. <laughs> so now maybe I'm wrong, but as a developer, I think what I'm seeing is I will have access to compute and storage, and I'll run a script, and I boot up that resource just for myself. Is that more or less expensive? You know, I would like if every single developer is, has this facility to spin things up so, well, much quicker because we're not depending on IT. And if we have a script, I mean, the reality is, is, is not as easy like, just send one command and you get it. But So if it's so easy and that's what everybody's doing, doesn't it become expensive for the company? So it, it can. Like I, I think when cloud-native infrastructure really became more popular in the workplace, workplace and became more like mainstream, there was a lot of talk about the concept of sticker shock, right? And so it's the idea of you had this predictable amount of money that was allocated to your infrastructure before, you know, you, these things cost this much and their value will degrade, degrade over time, right? So like the server you had in 2005 is not going to be as valuable as a server you buy in 2010, right? But that might be your refresh cycles like five years or so. But you have this predictable amount of money. Suddenly you have this script that we're talking about that can spin up an equivalent like resource as one of those servers. And if someone just leaves it running, it'll run for a long, long time. And so irresponsible users of the cloud or even just regular users of the cloud, it does cost a lot of money to use any of these cloud services or it can cost a lot of money. So yes, there is some concern about the amount of money that the, these things cost because honestly, as we're exploring cloud native topics, one thing keeps coming up is that cloud really just means somebody else's computer, right? And so you're not using the cost of maintenance or the time it takes to maintain things. Somebody else is, and you're, you're paying that price up front instead of doing it on like a yearly basis, right? So it's less predictable and usually a bit more than people are expected, right? But there is value there as well. So you're saying if the user is diligent enough to terminate the clusters or the machine, that is how you don't rack up unnecessary costs. Right. Yeah. So for like a test, like say you're running, you want to spin up your code really quickly. And you just need a, a quick like set of like networking and compute resources to test out your code. And you spin up a small, like a tiny instance somewhere in one of the clouds, test out your code and then kill the instance. That won't cost hardly anything. And it didn't really cost you much on time either. Right. So you had this automated process, hopefully, or you had a manual process that isn't too onerous and you get the resource and the things you need, and you're good. If you aren't a good player and you keep it going, 
that can get very expensive very quickly, right? Because it's a number of resources used per hour, I think is how most billing happens in the cloud. And that can exponentially, I mean, not really exponentially grow, but it will increase in time to a value that you were not expecting to see. So suddenly you get a bill and you're like, holy crap, what is this? I think it's also, I mean, this is definitely where things like orchestration come in, right? Because like, you know, with the level of abstraction that like you get from things like Kubernetes or, or Mesos or some of these other tools, you're able to provide access to those resources in a more dynamic way with the expectation and sometimes even the explicit contract that those workloads that you deploy will be deployed on common equipment, allowing for things like bin packing, which is a pretty interesting term when it comes to infrastructure and means that you can think of the fact that like for a particular cluster, I might have 10 of those VMs that we talk about having high value and I have 10 of those running. And then my goal is to make sure that I have enough consumers of those 10 nodes to be able to get my value out of it. And so when I split up the environment such that every developer has a namespace, right, this gives me the ability to effectively oversubscribe those resources that I'm paying for in a way that would reduce the overall cost of ownership or cost of, is not ownership, but maybe cost of operation for those 10 nodes. So let's take a, a step back a little bit and go down like memory lane. When did you first hear about the concept of IaaS, IaaS, or cloud native infrastructure or infrastructure as code. Carly, soon? I think in the last couple of years, yeah. same as uh, pretty much coincided with when I started tuning in into cloud native and Kubernetes. I'm not clear on the difference between uh, infrastructure as code for cloud native versus infrastructure as code for the cloud in general. It's, okay. Is there anything about cloud native that has different requirements and solutions? <laughs> or are we so just I, talking about this is, this is the cloud, and, but in the same applies for cloud native? Yes, I, I, I think that they're the same thing. So cloud, like infrastructure as code for the cloud is inherently cloud native, right? So cloud native just means that whatever you're trying to do leverages the tools and the contracts that a cloud provides. So the the basic like infrastructure as code is basically just how do how do I use the cloud? And like that's in, an, the, in an automated way. In an automated way or just in a way, right? So a properly constructed cloud should have a user interface of some kind that uses an API, right? A contract to create these machines or create these resources so that the way that it creates its own resources is the same that you create the resource if you programmatically do it, right? An autom or orchestration tool like Ansible or Terraform. The API calls that itself makes in its UI needs to be the same. And if we have that, then we have a well-constructed cloud-native environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, from the perspective of cloud infrastructure or cloud native infrastructure, the goal is definitely to have, you know, it, it relies on one of the topics that we covered earlier in our program around the idea of kind of API first or API driven being such an intrinsic quality of any cloud native architecture, right? Because fundamentally, if we can't do it programmatically, then <laughs> then we're kind of stuck in that old world of racking servers or going through some you know, human managed process 
And then we're right back to the same state that we were in before. And we're ne- there's no way that we can actually scale our ability to manage these problems because we're stuck in a place where it's like one-to-one rather than one-to-many. Yeah, those and APIs are critical. The APIs are critical. And that, uh, you bring up a good point to remind me of something. Not every cloud that you're going to run into is made the same. There are some clouds that exist, and I'm not going to specifically call them out, but there are some clouds that exist that the API is people. You submit a request, and a human being interprets your request and makes the changes. That is a big no-no. Mm-mm. Me no like. No good. <laughs> My brain stop. I don't... Yeah, so that is a poorly constructed cloud-native environment. In fact, I would say it is not a cloud-native environment at all. It can barely call itself cloud. and and sentence. (laughs) Duffy, how about you? When was the first time you heard the concept of cloud native infrastructure? So I'm going to take it from, I'm going to take this question in the form of like, what was the first programmatic infrastructure as a service that I played with? And for me, that was actually like back in the NYSERA days when we were virtualizing the network and effectively providing and, and building an API that would allow you to create network resources and the different targets that we were developing for were things like Zen Server, which at the time had a reasonable API that would allow you to create virtual machines, but didn't really have a good virtual network solution. There were also technologies like KVM, the ability to actually use KVM to create virtual machines, again with an API. And then, although in KVM it wasn't quite the same as an API, that's kind of where things like OpenStack and those technologies came along and kind of wrapped a lot of the capability of KVM behind a RESTful API, which was awesome. But yeah, so I would say Zen Server was the first one. And that gave me the ability, like a command line option with which I could stand up and create virtual machines and give them so many resources and all that stuff. And then, you know, from my perspective, it was the, it was NYSERA was the first network API that I actually ever saw. And it was also one of the first ones I worked on, which was pretty neat. And, and when was that, Tuffy? Some time ago. I would yeah. say like 2006, maybe. I would say the TVs didn't, TV didn't have color back then. <laughs> hey, hey now. Hey. hey. All right. For me, I first heard of cloud native infrastructure. It actually reminded me, it was the OpenStack days, I think. It was really when I first heard the phrase like, I infrastructure as a service. And at the time, I didn't even get close to grokking it. I still don't know if I grok it fully, but I was working at Red Hat at the time. So this was probably back in like 2012, 2013. And we were starting to leverage OpenStack more and having like this API driven tool set that could like spin up these VMs or instances was really cool to me. But it's something I didn't really get into using until I got into Kubernetes and it's specifically using Kubernetes on different clouds, such as like AWS or Azure. Um, and we'll touch on those a little bit later, but um, it was using those and then having like a CLI that had an API that I could reference really easily to spin things up. I was like, holy crap, this is incredible. And so that must have been around like the 2015, 16 timeframe, I think. I think I actually heard the phrase cloud native infrastructure first from our friend Chris Nova's book, Cloud Native Infrastructure. And I think that really helped me wrap my brain around really what it is to have something be like cloud native infrastructure and like how the different clouds interact in this way. Oh my God, I thought that was really a very handy book. I highly recommend it. Also well-written and an interesting read. It really is. I, I read it back to back. And when I joined Haptio, and I need to read it again, actually. I agree. I need to go back to it. And so 
I think we've touched something that we normally do, which is like, what what does this topic mean to us? I think we've kind of touched on that a bit, but if there's anything else that you all want to expand upon, any aspect of infrastructure that we've not touched on? Well, I was thinking to say something which is reflects my first encounter with Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. When I joined Haptio, when was, uh, I started using Kubernetes for the very first time. And I had such a misconception of what Kubernetes was. And I'm, I'm saying what I'm going to say to touch base on what I think, what I want to say. <laughs> I want to relay what infrastructure as, as code is not. Oh, uh, that's a very good point. Actually, I like that. Or maybe what Kubernetes is not. I'm not clear on what it is I'm going to say. Hang, hang with me. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's all related. So I work on Valero. Valero is, a, is an app that runs on Kubernetes. So I do have to have Kubernetes running for me to run Valero. So it can run on my machine or it can run on a, on a cloud provider and or on-prem, just for a plug. <laughs> <laughs> So for Kubernetes to run, I need to have a cluster running, not one instance, because I was used to like, yeah, I could bring up an instance or, or, like, or like an instance or two. I've done this before, but bringing up a cluster, make sure that everything is connected. I, I was like, mm, I've never done this. So when I started having to do that, I was thinking, I thought that's what Kubernetes did. Why do I have to bother with this? <laughs> Isn't that what Kubernetes is supposed to do? Isn't it like just deploy Kubernetes and all of that gets done? And then I had that realization, <laughs> you know, that encounter with reality. No, I still have to put up my infrastructure. That doesn't go away because you're doing Kubernetes. Kubernetes is like this abstraction code that sits on top of that infrastructure. So now what? Okay, I can do it manually. Well, TGIK has a great episode where Joe goes and installs everything by hand. He does like thing by every single thing, right? Every single step that you need to do, hook up the networking piece. It's brilliant. It really helps you visualize what happens when all of that stuff, how all of that stuff is brought up. Because ideally, you're not doing that by hand, which is what we're talking about here. So I used, for example, CloudFormation on AWS with a template that Haptio also has in partnership with AWS. There is a template that you can use to bring up a cluster for Kubernetes and everything's hooked up. The proper networking piece is there. So you have to do that first. And then you have Kubernetes automatically installed as part of that, that template. But the take-home lesson for me was that I definitely wanted to do it using some sort of automation because otherwise I don't have time for that. <laughs> Nobody got time for that, exactly. I got no time for that. <laughs> That's not my job. My job is something different. I'm just booting this stuff up to test my, my software. So yeah. absolutely, it's very handy. And but... If you, for people who is not working with Kubernetes yet, I just wanted to clarify that there is a separation. And the one thing is having your infrastructure in place. And then you have install Kubernetes on top of that. And then, you know, you might have your application running in Kubernetes or you can have an external application that interacts with Kubernetes. So 
as an extension of Kubernetes, right? Which is what I, the project that I work on. So that's a good point. It's something I want, we should dive into, and I'm glad that you brought this up, actually. That's a good example of a cloud-native application using the cloud-native infrastructure. And Kubernetes does a pretty good job of that all around. And so the idea of, like, Kubernetes itself is a platform. So you have, like, a platform as a service. That's kind of what you're talking about, which is, like, if I spin up, I just need to spin up a Kubernetes, and then, boom, I have a platform. And that comes with the infrastructure part of that. And so there are more and more like of these managed Kubernetes offerings that are coming out that facilitate that function. And those are an aspect of cloud native infrastructure. Those are the managed services that I was uh, referring to, where the, the administrators of the cloud are taking it upon themselves to do all that for you and then manage it for you. And I think that's a very great offering for people who just don't want to get into the weeds or don't want to worry about the management of their applications. Some of these, like, for instance, databases, these managed services are an awesome tool. And going back to Kubernetes a little bit as well, it is a great show of how a cloud-native application can work with the infrastructure that it's on. So for instance, in Kubernetes, if you spin up a service of type load balancer and it's connected to a cloud properly, the cloud will create that object inside of itself for you, right? So a load balancer in AWS is an ELB, it's just a load balancer in Azure, and I'm not familiar with the other terms that the other clouds use, but it will create these things for you. And I'm, I think that's the dopest thing on the planet. Like, that is so cool where I'm just like, this tool over here, I created it in this thing, and it told this other thing how to make that work in reality. That is so cool. Orchestration magic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Well, yeah, and then actually I kind of wanted to make a point on that as well, which is that I think the way I interpreted your original question, Kalicia, was like, what is the difference perhaps between these different models, like the, the infrastructure as code versus a plat, you know, or infrastructure as a service versus platform as a service versus containers as a service? Like what differentiates these things? And for my part, I feel like it's effectively an evolution of the API, like what the right entry point for your consumer is. So in the form, when we consider uh, container orchestration, we consider things like Mesos and Kubernetes and technologies like that, we, realize, we make the assumption that the right entry point for that user is an API in which they can define those things that we want to orchestrate, those containers or those applications. And we're going to provide within the form of that platform capability like you know service discovery and being able to handle networking and do all of those things for you so that all you really have to do is define like what needs to be deployed and what the and, and what other services they need to rely on and away you go. Whereas when we look at infrastructure as a service, the entry point is fundamentally different, right? We need to be thinking about what the infrastructure needs to look at. Like I would I might ask an infrastructure as a service API how many machines I have running and what networks they are associated with and how much memory and disk is associated with each of those machines. Whereas if I'm interacting with a platform as a service, I might ask whatever the questions about those primitives that are exposed by the platform. How many deployments do I have? What namespaces do I have access to? You know, how many pods are running right now versus how many I asked that would be running? Those sorts of capabilities. Very good point. And yeah, I'm glad that we uh, explored that a little bit. A cloud native infrastructure is not nothing, but it's close to useless without a properly 
leverage cloud native application of some kind. Truth. These APIs all the way down give you this true flexibility and like the real functionality that you're looking for in cloud. Because like as a developer, I don't need to care how the networking works or where my storage is coming from or where these things are actually located, what the API does, any of these things. I want someone to do it for me and an API does that, success. And that's what cloud native infrastructure gets you. Speaking of that, the things that you don't care about, what was it like before cloud? What did we have before cloud native infrastructure? The things that came to mind are things like vSphere. I think vSphere is a bridge between the bare metal world and the cloud native world. And that's not to say that vSphere itself is not necessarily cloud native, but there are some limitations. What um, is vSphere? vSphere is a tool, uh, VMware has created or created a while back. Um, I think it premiered back in 2000, 2000, 2001 timeframe. And it was a way to predictably create and manage virtual machines. So a virtual machine being a kernel that sits on top of a kernel inside of a piece of hardware. So is vSphere to virtual machines where Kubernetes is to containers? Mm. Not quite the same thing, I don't think, because fundamentally the underlying technologies are very different. Another way of explaining the difference that you kind of that 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 history is, you know, back in the day, like you know, two thousand nineties, even even currently, like what we have is we have a we have a layer of people who are like involved in dealing with with physical hardware. They rack you know ten or twenty servers, and before we had orchestration and virtualization and any of those things, we we would actually be installing an operating system and applications on those servers. And those servers would be web servers and those servers would be database servers and they would be a physical machine dedicated to a single task like a web server or a database. Where vSphere comes in and Zen server and, and KVM and those technologies is that we think about this model fundamentally differently. Instead of thinking about it like one application per physical box, we think about each physical box being able to hold a bunch of these virtual boxes that look like virtual machines. Right, and so now those virtual machines are where we put our application code. I have a virtual machine that is a web server. I have a virtual machine that is a database server. I have that level of abstraction. And the benefit of this is that I can get more value out of those hardware boxes than I could before, right? Before I would have to buy one box for one application. Now I can buy one box for 10 or 20 applications. When we take that to the next level, when we get to container orchestration, we realize, you know what, maybe I don't need the full abstraction of a machine. I just need enough of an abstraction to give me enough, just enough isolation back and forth between those applications such that they have their own file system. But they can share the kernel, but they have their own network, but they can share the physical network. You know, that we have enough isolation between them that they can't interact with each other except for when intent is present, right? Like that we have that sort of level of abstraction. You can see this is a much more granular level of abstraction. And the benefit of that is that we're not actually trying to create a virtual machine anymore. We're just trying to effectively isolate processes in a Linux kernel. And so instead of 20 or maybe 30 VMs per physical box, I can get 110 processes all day long, you know, like mm -hmm. on a physical box. And again, this takes us back to that concept that I mentioned earlier around bin packing. When we're talking about infrastructure, we have been on this eternal quest to make the most of what we have, to make the most of that infrastructure. You know, how do we actually, 
how, you know, what tools and tooling do we need to be able to see the most efficiency for the dollar that we spend on that hardware? That was simultaneously a great explanation of container and how containers compare with virtual machines. Bravo. That was really well-crafted, yeah. That was great. Now explain um, vSphere, please. I still don't understand it. I don't know what it, what it does. So vSphere is the one that creates the many virtual machines on top of a physical machine. It gives you the capability of having really good isolation between these virtual machines. And inside of those virtual machines, you feel like you have like a metal box, but it's not a metal box. It's just a process running on a metal box. All right. Or, so it's or, a system that holds multiple uh, virtual machines inside this, uh, the same machine. Yeah. Exactly. So think of it in the cloud native, in the cloud native like infrastructure world, vSphere is essentially the API. Or you could think of it as the cloud itself, which is, you know, it is in a sense an AWS, but for your data center. The difference being that there isn't a particularly useful API that vSphere exposes. So it makes it harder for people to programmatically leverage, which makes it difficult for me to say like, vSphere is a cloud native like okay. tool. It's a great tool and it does like it has worked wonders and still works wonders for a lot of companies throughout the years. But I would hesitate to lump it into a cloud native functionality. So prior to cloud native or uh, infrastructure as a service, we had these tools like vSphere, which allowed us to make smaller and smaller VMs or smaller like smaller and smaller compute resources on a larger compute resource and kind of going back to something we're talking about like containers and how you spin up these processes prior to things like containers and in this world of vms a lot of times what you would do is you would create a vm that had your application already installed into it it was kind of burnt into the image so that when that vm stood up it would spin up that process so that would be the way that you would start processes the other way would be uh, through orchestration tools similar to ansible but they existed prior to Ansible, that essentially just ran SSH on a number of servers to start up tool, like these processes. And that's how you'd get distributed systems prior to things like cloud native and containers. Makes sense. And so before we had vSphere, before we had Zen server, before we had uh, virtual machine automation, which is what these tools are, virtual machine automation, we had bare metal. We just had Joe's like Duffy and me <laughs> Cutting our hands on, you know, rack equipment. It's a, a server was never installed properly unless my blood was on it, essentially. Because <laughs> they're heavy and the, it's all metal and it's sharp in some capacity. And so you would inevitably squash a hand or something. And so you'd rack up the server and then you'd plug in all the things, plug in all the plugs, and then set it up manually. And then it's good to go. And then someone can use it at will or in a logical manner, hopefully. So, and that's what we had to do before. It's like, oh, I need a new compute resource. Okay, well, let's call Circuit City or whoever. Let's call Newegg and get a new server in. And there you go. And, and then has, there's a process for that. And yeah, thank God I'm not get, like dying of blood loss anymore. <laughs> and, and still a lot of companies are using bare metal as, yes, yes. as a metal, yeah. of course. Which, there, uh, which brings up another question if one would want to ask, which is, is it worth it these days to run better metal, metal if you have the clouds, right? One example is 
we see companies like Uber, Lyft, all of these super high volume companies using public clouds, which is to say paying another company for all that data, traffic of data, storage of data in compute and security and everything. And, you know, one could say, you would save a ton of money doing it in-house, but using bare metal. <laughs> and other people would say, there is no way. It's just, it costs so much for, for, to host all of that. I would say it really depends on the environment. So usually I think that if a company is using only cloud-native resources to begin with, it's hard to make the transition into bare metal because you're used to these tools being in place. A company that is more familiar, like they came from a bare metal background and moved to cloud, they may leverage both in a hybrid fashion well because they should have tooling or they can now create tooling that can make it so that their bare metal environment can mimic the functionality of a cloud native platform. It really depends on the company and also the need of security and data retention and all these things that have like, if you need this granularity of control, bare metal might be a better approach because if you need to make sure that your data doesn't leave your company in a specific way, putting it on somebody else's computer probably isn't the best way <laughs> to uh, handle that. So it, there is like a balancing act of like, how much resources are you using in the cloud and how are you using the cloud and what does that cost look like versus what does it cost to r run a data center, like have the physical real estate and then have like run the electricity, the HVAC, people's jobs, like their salaries specifically to manage that location and your compute and network resources and all these things. That is a question <laughs> that each company will have to ask. There's no like hard and hard like and fast answer, but for many smaller companies, something like the cloud is better because you don't have to like think about all these other costs associated with running your application. But then if you're a small company, I mean, if you're a small company, it's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. It makes sense for you to go to the cloud. But then you said that it's hard to transition from the cloud to bare Back. metal. It can. It really depends on the people that you have working for you. Like if the people you have working for you are good at creating automation and are good at managing infrastructure of any kind, it shouldn't be too bad. But as we're moving more and more into a cloud-focused world, I wonder if those people are going to start going away. For people who are just listening on the podcast, Duffy was heavily nodding as <laughs> Nick was saying that. I was. I do. I completely agree with the statement of it depends on the people that you have, right? Um, and, and fundamentally, I think the point I would add to this is that Uber, right, or, or a company like Uber or a company like Lyft, how many people do they employ that are focused on infrastructure, Right. And I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm, I'm positioning it, right? So if we assume that they have, you know, that this is a pretty hot market for people who understand infrastructure, so they're not going to have a ton of them. So what specific problems do they want those people that they employ that are focused on infrastructure to solve, right? Now we're thinking about this as a scale problem. I have 10 people that are going to manage the infrastructure for all of the applications that Uber has, Maybe I have 20 people, but it's going to be a percentage of the people compared to the number of people that I have maybe developing for those applications or for marketing or for, you know, within the company, I'm going to have, I'm going to be, I'm going to quickly find myself off balance in the number of applications that I need to actually support. 
that I need to operationalize to be able to get to deployed, right? Versus the number of people that I have doing the infrastructure work to provide that base layer for which, for which all of those applications will be deployed. Right? I look around in the market and I see things like orchestration. I see things like Kubernetes, Mesos, and technologies like that that can provide kind of a multiplier. Or even, you know, AWS or Azure or GCP. I have these things act as a multiplier for those 10 infrastructure people that I have, right? Because no, they're not looking at trying to figure out how to store, you know, get this data. They're not worried about data centers. They're not worried about servers. They're not worried about networking, right? They can actually... You know, 10 people that are decent at infrastructure can span, can spin up very large amounts of infrastructure to satisfy the developer and the operational need of a company the size of Uber reasonably. Mm-hmm. But if we had to go back to a place where we had to do all that in the physical world, like rack those servers, deal with the power, deal with the colo space, deal with all the cabling and all of that stuff, 10 people are probably not enough. Yeah, absolutely. We're, it, I, kind of put it into numbers, like if you are in a cloud native workspace, you might need like 1% of your workforce dedicated to infrastructure. But if you're in the bare metal world, you might need like 10 to 20% of your workforce dedicated just to running infrastructure. Because the over the overhead of people's like work is so much greater. And a lot of it is focused on things that are tangible instead of things that are fundamental like automate like automation, right? So like those 1% for Uber, if I'm, I'm pulling this number totally out of nowhere, but if like that 1%, their job is usually focused around automating the allocation of resources and figuring out like how the tools that they can use to bet, better leverage those clouds. In the bare metal environment, those people's jobs are more like, oh crap, suddenly we're at 90 degrees in the data center in San Jose, what's going on? and then having someone go out there and figuring out <laughs> what physical problem is going on. <laughs> and it's like a lot of their, their day-to-day lives. And something I wanted to touch on really quickly as well, with Bare Metal, prior to Bare Metal, we had something kind of interesting that we were able to leverage from an infrastructure standpoint, and that's mainframes. And we're actually kind of going back a little bit to the mainframe idea, but the idea of a mainframe, it is essentially, it's almost like a cloud-native technology, but not really. So instead of you using whatever, like you're able to spin up X number of resources and networking and make that work. The way the mainframe would work was that everyone used the same compute resource. It was just one giant compute resource. There was no networking needed because everyone's connected to the same resource. And they would just do whatever they needed, write their code, run it, and then be done with it, and then come off. And it was, it's a really interesting idea, I think, where the cloud almost mimics the mainframe idea where everyone just connects to the cloud, does whatever they need, and then comes off but at a different scale. That's a good and, point. Yeah. Duffy, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with I agree with your point. I think it is interesting to kind of go back to mainframe days. And I think from the perspective of like what a mainframe is versus like, you know, what the idea of a cluster and those sorts of those sorts of things are, is that you know it's kind of like the domain of what you're looking at. Mainframe considers everything to be within the same physical domain. Whereas like when you start getting into kind of the larger architectures or some of the more scalable architectures you find that just like any distributed system we're kind of spreading that we're spreading that work across a number of, of physical nodes and so we think about it fundamentally differently but it is interesting the parallels between what we do the work that we're doing today versus what we were doing in maintain times yeah cool i think we're getting close to a wrap-up time but uh something that we wanted to i wanted to touch on really quickly we've mentioned these things by names but 
I kind of want to go over some of like the cloud native infrastructures that we use on a day-to-day basis. So something we've, we've mentioned before, but Amazon's AWS is pretty much like the number one cloud, I'm pretty sure, right? Like that's the most number of users. And they have a really well-structured API, really good CLI, decent GUI. Sometimes there's some problems with it. And it's like the thing that people think of when they think cloud native infrastructure. Going back to that point again, I think that AWS was, you know, agreed one of the, AWS is one of the largest cloud providers and has certainly the most adoption as an infrastructure for cloud native infrastructure. And it is really interesting to see a number of other solutions out there. IBM has one, GCP, Azure. There are a lot of other solutions out there now that are really focused on trying to follow the same, maybe not the same exact pattern that AWS has, but certainly providing this a consistent API for all of the same resources or for all of the same services or and maybe some differentiating services as well. So it is, yeah, you can definitely tell it's sort of like follow the leader. You can definitely tell that AWS stumbled on to a really great solution there and that and that all of the other cloud providers are are jumping on board trying to get a piece of that as well. Yep. And also something that we kind of touched on a little bit as well, but from a cloud native infrastructure standpoint, it isn't wrong to say that a bare metal data center can be a cloud native infrastructure. As long as you have the tooling in place, you can have your own cloud native infrastructure, your own private cloud, essentially. I know that private cloud doesn't actually make any sense. That's not how clouds work. But you can have a cloud native infrastructure in your own data center. But it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of management. But it isn't something that exists solely in the realm of Amazon, IBM, Google, or Microsoft. And I can't remember the other names, the other ones that are running as well. Yeah, agreed. And actually, one of the questions that you asked Carly earlier that I didn't get a chance to answer was like, is it? do you think it's worth running bare metal today? And, and in my opinion, the answer will always be yes, right? There's always going, especially as we think about like if the line that we draw in the sand is container isolation or container orchestration, then there will always be a good reason to run on, on bare metal to basically expose resources that are available to us against a single bare metal instance, things like GPUs or you know other physical resources like that, or maybe we just need really, really fast disk and we want to make sure that we like provide those containers access to SSDs underlying. And there, are, there is technology certainly introduced by VMware that like, expose like real hardware from the underlying hypervisor up to the virtual machine where these particular containers might run. But you know, the question I think you, you, I always kind of come back to the idea that like when thinking about those levels of abstraction that provide access to resources like GPUs and those sorts of things, you kind of have to consider that simplicity is king here, right? Like as we think about the different fault domains and the failure domains as, as, we're, as we're coming up with these sorts of infrastructures, we have to think about like what it would look like when they fail or, or how they fail or how we actually, you know, go about allocating those resources for particular machines. And that's where I think that bare metal and, and technologies like that are not going away. I think they'll always be around. But to Nick's point, and, and I think as we covered pretty thoroughly in this episode, having an API between me and the infrastructure is not something I'm willing to give up. I need that to be able to actually to solve my problems at scale, even reasonable scale. Yeah. You mean you don't want to go back to the battle days of nope. our <laughs> telnetting into a Juniper switch and telling, you know, Setting up your IP, not IP tables, it was uh, your, you know, IP conf commands. Did you just say telnet, Nick? I said telnet, yeah. Oh. Or serial, serial connect into a... Uh, nice. Yeah. 
right. I think that pretty much covers it from uh, cloud native infrastructure. Do you all have any finishing thoughts on the topic? No, that this was great. Very informative. Yeah, I had a great time. This is a topic that I very much enjoy. It's things like Kubernetes and the cloud native infrastructure that we exist in is always what I wanted us to get to. Like when I was in university, like this was, I'm like, oh man, someday we're going to live in a world with virtual machines. And I didn't even have the idea of containers, but like people can like really easily deploy applications. Like I, I was amazed that we weren't there yet. And I'm so happy to be in this world now. Not to say that I think that we can, we need to stop improving. Of course not. We're not at the end of the journey by far, but I'm so happy we're at where we're at right now. As a developer, I have to say I am too. And I, was, I had this thought in my mind as we were having this conversation that I am so happy to, that we are where we are. And I think, well, obviously not everybody is there yet, but as people start practicing the cloud-native development, they will come to realize what it is that we're talking about. I mean, I said before, I remember the days when for me to get access to a server, I had to file a ticket, wait for somebody to approval. Maybe I wouldn't get an approval. And, and when I say me, I say, I mean my team or one of us would do the request. And, you know, then you had that server and everybody was pushing to, to the server, like one the main version of our app, will maybe it would run, like every day we'll get a, a, new, a fresh copy. Now, the way it is now, I don't have to depend on anyone. And yes, it's, it is a little bit of work. I do have to run the scripts and put up the clusters, but it's so good that it's all for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I am selfish that way. No, seriously, it's like I don't have to wait for a code to merge and be pushed. It's my code that's right there sitting on my computer. I am pushing it to the clouds. Boom. I yeah. can test it. Some things I can test it on my, on my machine, but some things I can't. So like when I'm dealing with volume, I have to push it to the cloud provider. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's so, I don't know, I feel very autonomous and that makes me very happy. Totally agree. For that exact reason, like, you know, testing things out, maybe something isn't ready for somebody else to see. It's not ready for prime time. So I just need to, I need something really quick to test it out. But also for me, I am the avatar of unwitting chaos, meaning basically everything I touch will eventually blow up. So it's also nice that whatever I do that's weird isn't going to affect anybody else either. And that's great. Blast radius is amazing. (laughs) All right. So I think that pretty much wraps it up for the cloud native infrastructure episode. I had an awesome time. This is always fun. So please send us your concepts and ideas in the GitHub issue tracker. Uh, you can see our existing episode and suggestions and you can add your own at github.com slash heptio slash the cubulets and then go to the issues tab and file a new issue or see what's already there. All right, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, bye. Thank you for listening to the Podlets Cloud Native Podcast. Find us on Twitter at ThePodlets and on the podlets.io website. That is the podlets all together, where you'll find transcripts and show notes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned by subscribing. Mm-hmm.